Again, our scripture for this morning is Mark 1, 9 to 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Good morning to you. It's good to be back with you. I just got back Monday night from a Hello? Okay. 12-day trip, 12-day pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, where I got a chance to visit uh, Jordan and Palestine and Israel. If anybody's interested, probably at some point, hopefully I can do more of a, a presentation slideshow for anybody who's interested. But I wanted to at least just take one week before we, we get back on our series on Exodus to, to kind of connect the sermon to my trip and in particular to try to get a a sense of how the topography, how the geography, even the climate of the Bible lands helps us understand the Bible better, the stories of the Bible better. I found it to be, I know a number of you have been to the Holy Land, I found it to be incredibly insightful to take these stories that, uh, that most, a lot of us have known all our life, and, and we hear in this setting right here, and take them out of Northeast Ohio or wherever and put them in the actual physical location where they took place. All these things start to pop. For example, if you, when you experience how hot and dry uh, the, the, the Bible lands are, so much of it, it makes so much more sense why water is such a big deal in the Bible. You, you come across wells are a big deal, springs are a big deal, rivers are a big deal. Uh, even in this part of the world now, particularly Jordan, it is a, uh, they have major problems with water. And so you just, every time you see in the text water, it sticks out. We were on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, and we were a pretty modern boat. We were getting blown pretty, pretty hard by the wind, and it makes so much more sense why the disciples would be straining at the oars, and also why, as you look around at the mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee, how Jesus could have been standing or praying on one of those mountains and seeing all this transpire. Or when you stand in Jericho and you look up to Jerusalem, which sits on this ridgeline of mountains, why the scriptures are always talking about going up to Jerusalem. They're not talking about north. They're talking about literally moving up uh, several thousand feet to uh, the city of Jerusalem. So what I want to do today is just take this pretty familiar passage with the, to us, this uh, account of Jesus' baptism in Mark, and, and try to place it in a real place and see what, what that opens up for us in the story. It begins at this, at the time that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, uh, it was baptized by John in the Jordan. So, uh, Ron, if you can put up that first slide. Oh, it's not the best picture, pixelation. Okay. We'll have to use our imagination. I'm not sure what happened on the picture. But this is at the top of Mount Precipice. This is the, uh, the traditional place where Jesus was taken uh, to be thrown off. In Luke's gospel, he preaches in the synagogue and he's driven out. Uh, to this hill, and we read that uh, he's almost uh, thrown off it. So this would have been 
right outside of where Jesus, Nazareth, where Jesus spent 30 years of his life. And, uh, and you can kind of see why this would be a place, you can't, but it, it drops off pretty precipitously. I mean, you can definitely see how you could try to drive someone off this cliff. But what I want to see is like, this is all the, the again, I'm sorry, this did not turn out as I hoped it would. This is the Jezreel Valley. This is a, a big fertile plain up in the northern part of Israel. And as you sit up on this mountain and you look out, you see so many stories that happen in the Bible. So this big mound that you see out there, that's Mount Tabor, which is where the prophet and judge Deborah and her general Barak led the Israelites into battle with the Canaanites. If you were to just keep going a little bit to the right on that plain, you'd get to Mount Gilboa, where Israel's first king, Saul, he, he leads a charge against the Philistines, and this is where he dies by falling on his sword. Uh, if, you, if you keep going farther to the right in that picture, you get to Megiddo, which is where King Josiah died. And you know, interestingly, this is uh, in John, in the, in the book of Revelation, John talks about Armageddon as this place where this final battle takes place. And you can take Har, which means mountain in Megiddo, and you get Armageddon, Har- which you know, Armageddon. And this makes so much more sense because this is a valley which for in Bible times and right up into World War I and beyond, battles take place here. Like this is, it makes sense that armies as they come through the mountains would meet on, on a flat plain. Uh, and, and one book I read pointed out, uh, you can take that off, Ron, thanks. One book I pointed out is that, you know, we're just outside of Jesus' village. It's very likely that Jesus would have, parents would have taken him to uh, this Mount Precipice, uh, to look out of the Jezreel Valley, to learn the history of his people. And I'm thinking about that. I'm reminded that, you know, Jesus didn't come to earth with this kind of pre-downloaded uh, story of his people. Uh, no, he learned it from, from people. He learned it from his parents. He learned it from his community. He learned it in the synagogue. He learned it uh, by being out for the day with his parents and finding themselves on a mountain. And his parents telling the stories of his people. And then one day, Jesus would enter into this story. He would, you can also see from this Mount Precipice, the city of Nan, which is where uh, he will raise uh, a dead widow's son from the dead. So I just want to point out, so here, the, we're in Nazareth, and Jesus is going to head towards uh, to, to Jordan to launch his public ministry. But when he leaves, he leaves saturated in the story of his people. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly, right? The story of Israel is not just good, good stuff all the time. We know that. Um, they didn't always get it right. But, but Jesus leaves. He leaves with a specific story, a specific, specific faith, and a specific people. And, you know, here's the first point I want to make today. To you parents and grandparents and, and everyone in our community, we have this same sacred task that Jesus' parents had to pass down the faith, to tell the story of our faith. And, and thankfully, we have just really talented people at our church that are leading awesome intergenerational classes downstairs, which I was a part of, and just what a great stuff we have going on for the kids. That is so important. But we need our children not just to hear about these stories on Sunday morning. I, I want you parents and grandparents to fill the week at your house with stories Like, right, if we only do this on Sunday morning, the message we send to our kids is kind of faith is what you do on Sunday morning, and then the other six days of the week we we devote to to stuff that's really important, right? We need to really flip that around and and, and do that and incorporate this in our day-to-day life. In the book of Jude, 
Uh, the writer urges the reader to contend for the faith that was once for all trusted to God's holy people. Notice how uh, Jude doesn't say uh, contend for a faith, right? As long as you get some kind of faith, you're, you're good. No, Jude says contend for the faith, meaning that Jude has in mind a particular faith, uh, particular stories, particular beliefs, particular doctrines that, that we need to contend for, that we need to pass on. Okay, so, so Jesus, he spends three decades in this place, right? A lot of, we, we get all the exciting stuff in the three years, but there was this long period of time where Jesus was working with his father. Uh, he was immersing himself in the story of this people. Okay, so we're going to leave Nazareth, and we're going to go. Jesus is going to leave and go to the Jordan. And what you really understand when you're there is uh, you're leaving this mountainous, pretty fertile area that's uh, a lot cooler. It's a 1,200 feet below, above sea level. And, and Jesus is going to cross to the east and cross over the Jordan, and then he's going to head south towards the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. And so what I want you to kind of get in your mind is just uh, Jesus is moving to dramatically different landscape when he moves from Nazareth to Jordan. Can you put the next picture up? Okay, so uh, this is uh, looking out the a bus at the Judean wilderness. This, is, uh, this would have been later kind of where Jesus sets his parable, the Good Samaritan. And you can see, hopefully, that it's just totally different than the landscape in Nazareth. Right? Nazareth this feels kind of dry, but nothing like when you cross over uh, to the east of the mountains. And what happens in Israel and Palestine today is that there's these, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, there's these, the, the moisture comes up from the west and it, and it pushes the moist air to this ridge of mountains where Jerusalem sits. And as that's happening, all the moisture is squeezed out of the air. So you go from a, a semi-dry area like Nazareth, which, you know, again, kind of feels relatively lush, to this barren and parched landscape known as the Judean wilderness. And, and Jesus is going to be just to the east of here. This is also where Jesus will return to be tested, right? Again, you think he really was, it really was wilderness desert that Jesus was tested in. Um, and as you, as you drop down into, uh, into the Jordan, into this valley, Jordan Valley, you, you not only see it, you feel it. It gets really hot. Like it's dry. You look around and it's hard to understand how, uh, how you can even survive. How do you eke out a living in such a dry climate? And we don't know exactly where, where on the Jordan G, uh, John was baptizing, but the traditional spot, and you can put up the next one, is a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. So not Bethany, the site where next to Jerusalem where Jesus goes on, on his triumphant entry, but uh, Bethany beyond the Jordan. So we're, we're up to the west of Sea of Galilee, Nazareth. He comes to the east. He drops down the Jordan River, uh, and he's going to arrive what we think is a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And we don't hear that in Mark, but uh, Mark just says the Jordan. But the Gospel of John actually tells us um, this is where it happened, the, that uh, Jesus was baptized at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Okay, you can take that off, Ron, thanks. So, um, so I've never really thought about this, like, why? Why is John here? Like, what is John doing in this desolate wilderness, desert, this place out in the middle of nowhere? Why choose uh, this place to baptize people? There seems like there's a lot of maybe better options for John if he's going to hang out and baptize people. Well, for one, John, John who again is steeped in the Scripture himself, he, he, this is where John expects God to show up. 
Uh, in, in Mark and the other Gospels, we read uh, the quotation from Isaiah 43, which says this, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Okay, so John is not out up on the temple in Jerusalem, baptizing people, preparing the way of the Lord. John's not on the Mediterranean coast. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness because this is where he expects God to show up. Okay, and he's, but he's not just in any wilderness. This is a, a big area. He happens to be in a very symbolic location. And this is where I think our geography uh, kind of helps inform our theology. So only a, a short distance from Bethany beyond the Jordan, this baptismal site, is a place called Telmar Elias, which is also known as Elijah's Hill. And this is the traditional place that's identified as where Elijah was, was taken up into heaven, where he ascended into heaven in a chariot of fire. You can put the next one up. This is uh, Elijah's Hill. This is our, our group up there. And if you remember this, if you don't remember the story, Elijah and Elisha are are out near the Jordan River, and they're going to, they're gonna, Elisha's been told by the Lord that his master is going to be taken from him, and, and these other uh, prophets keep saying, hey, Elisha, do you know your, your, your master is going to be taken from you? And he's like, I know, I know, you know, shut up, is like basically what he says a couple times. And, and then Elijah and Elisha, they cross over the Jordan, and, and the way they do that is Elijah rolls up his cloak, and he strikes the river, and the river Jordan divides, and then they can cross over. And then uh, we have this dramatic uh, ascension into heaven in the chariot of fire. And Elisha then takes Elijah's cloak, and he then strikes the Jordan to go back over. So we have this right, dividing of the Jordan, crossing back and forth over the Jordan River. Thanks, Ron. You can... So in the last words of the book of Malachi, which is the, the last book of the Old Testament, we read this. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So here's this guy, John, in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. He's wearing uh, clothing made of camel's hair. He's eating locusts and wild honey. He's, he sounds a lot like this Elijah figure, and he's right down the road from where Elijah ascended into heaven. And if we keep looking around, again, th like thinking geographically, if we keep looking around this baptismal site, we'll also realize that this is the plains of Moab. Okay, what happened on the plains of Moab? The plains of Moab are the last place where the Israelites camped before they crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. So we're, uh, we're in a series on the book of Exodus, and we're uh, eventually in the, in the Torah. It's going to take a long while, 40 years and several books. The Israelites are finally going to arrive at the plains of Moab. It's going to take 40 years. It's not going to be a, a quick trip. And that's where, that's going to be the last place that they camp before they enter into the promised land. And that's where Moses is going to deliver uh, his farewell speech, which he's going to do to prepare the people to move into Canaan. And he makes this, in his speech, he makes this urgent appeal to the Israelites to obey God's law. If you remember, Moses isn't going to get to enter into the promised land. In fact, you know, where John is likely standing and baptizing Jesus, if he would have looked back over his shoulder, he would have seen out uh, on the Jordan side, Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo is that place where, where God took Moses up and showed him the promised land that he would, he would not be able to enter into. So here's my point. Like John is, as we look at the geography, as we look at where things are happening, we realize that this is not just some random place in the wilderness that John's baptizing. John has likely chosen a very symbolic 
place to baptize people, and ultimately he will baptize Jesus. So what's, this, what's so significant about this place? Well, the Israelites, when they are there, camped and they're crossing into the promised land, this is a new start for them as a people. And by John going out to this location, he is making the statement, uh, you know, 1,300 years later, we need a fresh start as a people. We need a new start as a nation. We need a new beginning. Yeah, we, we entered into the promised land all those years ago, but things have not gone as we expected. We have not been faithful to the covenant that God made with our people when they first crossed over this river all those years later. And we're going to need to do it again. Right? We're going to need to come back to this same spot where we first entered the promised land, and we're going to need to cross over the Jordan again. We're going to, we're going to need a new exodus. I'm trying to think about how we could, how this might make, like that again, plains of Moab doesn't mean a lot to us. I don't think that brings back, but maybe think about it this way. Say your ancestors migrated to the United States, you know, sometime in the 1800s, and when they came over, like 12 million other immigrants, they passed through Ellis Island. So maybe you've been studying the history of your people. Maybe uh, you've realized that things have not exactly gone as maybe your ancestors hoped they would go. Maybe your life has just kind of gone awry, and you are longing for a fresh start. Okay? So I live, in, I live in Ohio. I could do that now. I could stand up and say, man, I need a fresh start on my life. I need a new beginning. Or I think it'd be a little more powerful if I went over to New York and I rented a boat and I went out into the sea and then I crossed into New York again and I went through Ellis Island, right? There'd be something powerful about doing that. It, it would give me a greater sense that, okay, I'm going to do, not only am I going to do a fresh start, but I'm going to act out this fresh start. And John is calling the Jewish people back to this specific place because that was where the original covenant was made where they entered into the promised land. And he's saying, we need to do this again. We need a fresh start. We need a new beginning. We need to re-enter the promised land. Okay, let's go, let's, let's go to the uh, next slide. So this is, the, this is the baptismal site, the traditional spot of the baptismal site of Jesus, where John baptized Jesus beyond the Jordan. So... Um, after trekking it from Nazareth to Jordan, he crosses down. He's now a few miles to the north of the Dead Sea. We're east. We're in modern-day Jordan. And we're at a place that um, there would have been a spring that, that emerged that would have um, created this kind of oasis in the desert. And it would, have, uh, it would have fed into the Jordan River. So the Jordan River has shifted some since Jesus' day. It's a lot different. It's a lot smaller river. Um, but... But uh, it's more like a creek now. But it used to be a lot bigger river. And there were certain times of year where the Jordan was so big, it would be, it'd be a dangerous place to baptize. So there's a good chance that John, while he's in the Jordan, working his way up and down, he's baptizing people in springs and brooks that are, that are right by the Jordan River. And he's probably doing that as much as he was in the Jordan. And the reason why um, people think that this is the spot is because as early as 333 A.D., Christian pilgrims have been coming to this spot. Okay? This has been a really important spot from pretty early on in Christianity for people to go to. And then for four consecutive centuries, um, right up kind of where that building is, the people just kept building churches. And it's interesting because they were building churches at a place that 
uh, flooded, that there was uh, earthquakes, and these churches kept getting destroyed. So they'd build a church, and it would get destroyed. And they'd build a church, and it'd get destroyed. And they just kept building it, which is not really good building practices, right? Like, you don't, you don't typically, if something's going wrong with a flood, you need to choose a new location. And yet the early Christians keep choosing this location. And it's because, most likely, because this was the spot, right? This was the spot, and they wanted to keep coming back here to make sure that they marked that spot. It's not in a city. It's not near people. It's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, in this flood plain. Uh, and yet that's where they keep rebuilding the church. And as you can see, it's really not, it's really not much, to, like, there's not much there. And this is actually what I really loved about this place. Um, I think this is one of my favorite places I visited. It's on the Jordanian side of the Jordan River. So the Jordan River forms the, the, the border between Palestine, Israel, and Jordan. We're on the Jordanian side. The Israeli side gets way more visitors. There's not near as many visitors on this side. Um, and a lot of, if you've been to the Holy Land, a lot of these sites are really built up. There's big elaborate churches over them, and it's sometimes hard to like, imagine the place looking like it, like it did back in Jesus' day. But the baptismal site felt different. It felt pretty humble. And what I'm, what I'm reminded of, of this, this humble site is, and I think we kind of take this for granted now, but what a, what a strange thing that, that our faith centers around this person whose inauguration as the Messianic king took place here. Like, just think about that for a little bit. This is kind of strange. Uh, we got this humble little spring, stream, um, we're in a desert, it's hot, we're far away from the centers of power. Like, compare that. So uh, Queen Elizabeth just recently celebrated, uh, or Britain celebrated the 70th year since Queen Elizabeth II took the throne, and it was, you know, the Platinum Jubilee. That, I didn't get, I was in Israel when this was happening, but I got the sense there was lots of pageantry that was surrounding this celebration that she, uh, when she t- first took the throne. And so that kind of pomp and circumstance, like that's what I expect uh, to surround the inauguration of a king or a queen or to celebrate 70 years of an enthronement. Like this is not what I expect. Like our, our messianic king was not inaugurated amidst pomp and circumstances. He, he was inaugurated as king in a lowly place, in like the most literal lowest place on earth, right? Right? Just the south of here is the Dead Sea, which is the, the lowest place on earth. And the other thing about Jesus' inauguration as, as the Messianic king is that uh, he, he doesn't do it uh, separated from the rest of the people. You know, when Jesus would have come to this spot and John was baptizing, he would have joined in line, he would have stood in line with repentant sinners who were waiting to be baptized by John. Even though he was without sin, he stood in line with them. Uh, queen Elizabeth, you know, to no fault of her own, um, is likely going to struggle to understand the life of an average person. Like, she's just too separated from the average person. Like, if she were to give, be given that kind of uh, test that politicians are given sometimes of, do you know how much a loaf of bread costs or a gallon of milk? I, I can't imagine Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth is going to pass that. Like, she, yeah, she's just, that's, that's normal, to be separated out. But not King Jesus. When King Jesus came and his messianic inauguration... He didn't separate himself from us. He joined us. He spent, you know, like we looked at, we spent this few decades in this humble little village, Nazareth. Uh, you know what he did in that village? He, he heard stories about his faith, but he learned to trade. He learned to be a builder. 
uh, from his father. And this, then he comes to launch his ministry here. That's why I just think the, the humility of this place reminds me why Jesus can identify with us. He gets us. Like we take that for granted, I think, that our king is not like other kings, but I just want us to just rest in that, how amazing that is. Um, Where you park for this baptismal spot, spot, it's about a 10-minute walk from where you park, and our our guide, Nelson Craybill, he did something really neat. I think is something we don't do enough, I think, is he, he just said, just don't talk, just be silent, and just think about your own baptism. And I was so glad he said that because there's been so, um, I love being in the Anabaptist tradition and I'm like, why don't we talk about our baptism more? <laughs> the Anabaptist as those who, 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 as our core of that. So I really appreciate him doing that, um, doing that. And, I, and I'm thinking about um, the Apostle Paul, he writes this in Romans. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So at our baptism, we go down in the waters, as Paul speaks, and there's a death that happens in those waters. There's a death to our old self. Our old identity is, is buried, and that's what baptism does such a good job of illustrating. There's this watery grave that we enter into, and that, that old person is gone. And in that grave, we are united with Jesus Christ. And what emerges from those waters is a new person, is a new creation, a, a son or a daughter of the living God. Meaning, I think this goes back to our text, is, is uh, now God doesn't see us as we see ourselves, but he sees us as we are in Jesus Christ. Right? The words that are spoken uh, at that baptism to, from the Father to the Son are so tender, so loving. And these are the words uh, that you and I hear at our, our own baptism. You, and you can insert your name, you are my dear, dear child. I am delighted with you. I think one of the reasons, why do we need to return to our own baptism? We need to hear those words again. I am delighted with you. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to just hear those words fall upon me. You are beloved by God. I am so delighted in you. So I want you to return to your baptism when you are united with Christ and you take on what Jesus did. You are a beloved child of God. You can show the next last couple pictures. Uh, A little bit past this spring, we get to the Jordan River. Again, it doesn't look like too much of what you imagine. It's a lot smaller than it used to be, pretty muddier. But on on the Israeli side, as as a group of Christians, I'm not sure, I think maybe Orthodox Christians, I'm not exactly sure, but they are just having this joyous celebration of entering into the Jordan River. Um, uh, the priest is like flinging around water, and they're singing, and they're just plunging themselves in, and it's, it was just awesome. And then on our side are the Mennonites who are a little more subdued. <laughs> you can go on to the next picture. Here's the Mennonites dipping themselves, their foot in the water, right? <laughs> That's all right, because we were, we were singing. We sat and we sang a cappella, this song, and most everyone touched some of the water. Um, and I just, these two things came together on this river of just um, followers of Jesus just being moved by this experience um, of being by, by the Jordan River. Um, and the other thing about, we remember, I just, we remember how beloved we are at our baptism, but we also remember that we 
two, are passing into a new life. Um, When we choose to follow Jesus, when we choose to make our own covenant with God, uh, this reorients our life. It changes everything. And like, you know, the Israelites who entered into the promised land, the reality is is we are prone to, to forget We're prone to wander. We're prone to uh, kind of forget the covenant that we made at our own baptism with God and our covenant we made with our brothers and sisters. And so I just want to encourage you, just as a final note, um, you don't have to go back to the Jordan River to to renew your baptismal vows, but just to go back to that place, go back to that spot where where John took the people for a fresh start to renew your own covenant, to renew your own commitments you've made to to Jesus Christ for a new beginning and a fresh start. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being our king, for being a king unlike any other king in history, a king who is all-powerful, who is Lord of all creation, who at one day every knee will bow before you, and yet you came in such humble circumstances, Lord. You grew up in a small town, like many of us grew up in small towns. You chose to inaugurate your messianic kingship in a humble place in the desert, away from the crowds, away from the, so much of the trappings of, of pageantry we usually associate with uh, kings and queens. Lord, I just thank you that you are a king who asks for our obedience, but you get us, Lord. You have walked this path before us. You're not walk, asking us to walk a path that you have not walked yourself. And so I just ask for each person uh, that they might return to their own baptism, their own formal commitment to Jesus Christ to renew those vows uh, to you and to each other. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.